with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for checking in. Very, very much appreciated. Today, Jonathan and I are continuing with our conversations on the book that he has edited called Maturing Leadership. And our guest today is Dr. David McCallum, Society of Jesus. He is a Jesuit priest and leadership educator. He serves as the founding executive director of the Program for Discerning Leadership, a special project of the General Curia of the Society of Jesus, Georgetown, and the Gregorian University. The program provides leadership formation for senior Vatican officials and major superiors of religious orders in Rome, Italy, as well as internationally. He serves as a facilitator for mission-driven personal and organizational development programs, provides developmentally informed executive coaching, and delivers leadership development programs and spiritual retreats internationally. He co-founded the Contemplative Leaders in Action Program, an initiative of the Office of Ignatian Spirituality, as well as the Global Jesuit Case Series, the Mission Integration Institute at the University of San Diego, and the Ignatian Leadership Program for the Conference of European Provincials of the Society of Jesus. Currently, Father McCallum lives in Rome and serves as a member of the Secretariat for the Synod of Bishops' Commission on Methodology, supporting the Synodal Process Initiative by Pope Francis, and as adjunct faculty in the Institute for Anthropology, Interdisciplinary Studies of Human Dignity, and Care at the Pontifical Gregorian University. Father, 
Thank you so much for being with us today. We are so excited for this conversation. Jonathan, I know you are excited for this conversation. What else do listeners need to know about you before we jump in? That's that's a lot. You've been a, a busy person. <laughs> oh boy, after an introduction like that, Scott, I feel like we all have to take a deep breath. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Um, and I'm really grateful to be with you both, to be reunited with Jonathan. Uh, we've crossed paths many times over the years, and I'm so grateful for the work he did editing this volume and bringing our work to a wider audience. And Scott, to you and your service, really, to people who are leadership development experts around the world for the, the content you're bringing. So it's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. What to know? I'm a guy in Rome uh, trying to do my part to help support the church and really attending to a lot of the the gaps uh, in its leadership and helping to nurture with the various skills and resources and lenses that we talk about in this program, a real shift of the way that we operate and a shift in the direction of a more participatory approach to authority and to leadership an approach that uh, really invites people to become more and more their own protagonists in serving this mission of the Catholic Church, but also the mission of the Catholic Church in the world to really reconcile, to promote social justice, to try to do some good. And uh, that's with a lot of awareness also of all the shadows that the Church brings into uh, into its mission. So, so yeah, just trying to do my little part. I, I love it. I'm a guy in Rome. I th you're a little more than that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we're going to come around to what you're doing now uh, towards the end of this conversation, because I know from our interactions how much it's informed by this understanding of what does this kind of transformation demand of people individually? And how do you facilitate that kind of thing? So, Maybe to get us started, could you just give us a very brief background and how you came to be interested in this kind of research topic? And what I will say for readers is that the chapter is on the implications of developmental diversity for leadership education. And in particular, what caught my attention was understanding fallback. Mm, yeah. So yeah. can you say a little bit about how did you get into all this? Sure. Well, for me, the background is really this question that came up in my studies in the late 90s when I was in theology, was first exposed to the work of Robert Keegan and Ron Heifetz at the same time when I was uh, studying in Cambridge. And I could see the connections between the adaptive leadership approach that Heifetz had been innovating and the demands that this particular form of of leadership this way of conceptualizing the attitudes and the practices the dispositions that leaders need to have toward complex and adaptive challenges and that this imposes developmental demands on leaders so as i was unpacking those connections the uh, the people i was in touch with at the time including bob keegan said there's something here and uh, it's something that increasingly is catching people's attention. It's not been well developed. And um, the first opportunity I had to really study that more rigorously was doing my doctoral studies at Columbia. When I was uh, thinking about a dissertation topic, my first interest was, okay, this question of the capacities and competencies uh, 
How did they match up? My first interest was looking at the work of Otto Scharmer and the demands that the U process imposes on people who are facilitating and participating in the U process. That was not a really fruitful path at the time. And so this question came back to, all right, as leaders confront the VUCA conditions of our times, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, and they engage them in a way that in their workplaces, their responsibilities and roles, what are the distinct capacities that people bring at distinct stages of their development to meet those demands? What are the resources that they draw on from within themselves, right? Um, the kind of attitudes and dispositions that help people to navigate the heat of the moment or to, to move through conflict in a way that's constructive um, or to disentangle symptoms and root causes. I mean, these are very demanding sorts of things. And then the question also of what happens when we react instead of show up in a creative way, when essentially we have an experience of a temporary regression. And when that shows up in the context of a meeting or kind of interaction, which is interpersonal or, you know, in the midst of some kind of a systemic change process, what do you do with that? So that was that was essentially the underlying context and questions that came to me as I started. I have noticed that lately this question has been coming up. So you talk about capacities and competencies, and I think people conceptualize those in a way as if they're somewhat stable. And the notion of action logics or stages of development has at least has I experienced coming into relationship with it is you initially think of these as almost ontological things that are kind of very stable. And yet we see, and as you start alluding to, they're, they're not always so stable. And I found the distinction between our meaning-making capacity maybe being stable, but our performance in context is variable. Oh, yes. Yes. And I think this is where you're heading into. So what kind of context did you find? Because you were able to do a quite a rich uh, study combining a number of things. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to set that up and what you did for it? Yeah, first of all, I would say that um, Susanka Kruder and Bob Keegan and Bill Torbert, they all had referenced the idea that these action logics or stages are a bit more fluid and fuzzy than they're mapped in the theory. But they didn't really have any kind of empirical data to talk about how this shows up in the context of people's performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and my study was the first to, in a sense, capture that data and begin to explore and unpack it. And subsequently, a number of dissertations have followed up on my work. A recent book by Valerie Livesay, who I'd highly recommend for your program, is really a beautiful, in a sense, expose on how this fallback dynamic occurs, what we can gain from it as we learn our way in our leadership as we are all on that journey of trying to show up as our better selves, but the reality is our context and the conditions that we're, we're situated in are constantly squeezing our developmental capacity. We know that sometimes we show up in a setting and nobody is willing to authorize us to do our work. 
And that kind of psychodynamic process of expectation and projection can really stifle our ability to really show up as our better selves. In another setting, we're highly authorized and we're able to do things that almost feel miraculous to another setting. So the context and conditions in which we operate how much we have protein in our system, <laughs> uh, <laughs> aren't, aren't too hungry, have had a decent night's sleep. All these things become factors. And even though we might exercise awareness, like Jonathan's saying, about how we could show up, the fact is we don't, we don't uh, on a consistent basis. We don't have complete control over that. And this temporary regression is what I call fallback. Now, how did we study that? Well, the the setting I chose is that of an experiential learning conference sponsored by A.K. Rice in the United States. It's uh, associated with the Tavistock Institute in London. This is a, a setting where people who want to understand the exercise of authority in a living lab can come together in a format of several days or a week and experience a, a kind of temporary organization and that temporary organization imposes all those demands that we face in our very challenging workplaces and leadership roles today. The volatility, the uncertainty, the complexity, the ambiguity, the conflict, interpersonal, systemic, the challenge of trying to sort out ambiguous roles and how to sort out difference. Diversity is often a, a factor in these conferences. And today we know that navigating diversity in a way that's conscious, that's intentional, that's got a constructive result, right? That's not so easy. So that context provided really good, in a sense, artificial but real conditions in which to experience this. And you pointed out in your chapter that your interest was in diversity in relation to this, and specifically what wasn't addressed was developmental diversity. That's right. So the varying ways in which we bring ourselves to these challenging contexts based on our developmental capacity. Well, and I loved your phrasing a little bit ago that some of these VUCA contexts or or just these varied contexts, it doesn't even necessarily, it could just, in my con, in my case, parenting. <laughs> these different contexts, you know, impose developmental demands on leaders. Yeah. And navigating some of these conversations or some of these situations, it's such an incredibly fun topic. And I, I love this exploration. And it would make perfect sense that fallback would occur if we look across any other domain of learning. Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be the case, right? Yeah. And you know, Scott, to your point, there's there's the context which imposes demands on us, and then there's the baggage that we bring along from the past. Yes. So many of us have had really great education experiences that help us to form assumptions about what will work or won't work in a given situation. And then a lot of us have had what I would call miseducative experiences, where we've been <laughs> traumatized by the way a certain situation or relationship unfolded. And those become, in a sense, trigger points for these regressive moments. And if we don't have a lot of self-awareness around them, if we haven't experienced enough healing and liberation from some of that experience uh, in our earlier lives, a lot of it going back to our earliest childhood experiences, 
we're going to bring that into our current work life. There's work to do, inner and outer. Yes. One of the things that I talk about uh, sometimes is in doing leadership development, it's important to start with a bit of cleaning up Mm. so that we address these issues, this baggage we bring with us before we try growing up. Because otherwise we can add layers of complex justifications for poor stuff. Yeah. And it would be so nice, Jonathan, if it happened in that linear way. (laughs) You know that it's it's basically this kind of like corkscrew spiral we're on, right? We're always circling the very small and limited early grounds of our experience, but hopefully from an increasing altitude with more perspective and more ability to integrate what we're experiencing. Sometimes we've got to go down the spiral. Sometimes we can go back up. One thing that I'm interested in is something I know about myself is that 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 conflict can be challenging for me. That I my default, my natural way of being is to avoid it like the plague to do everything I can to stay out of situations where conflict will be present. So in many areas of my life, I mean, literally, I'm I'm listening, Jonathan, to the Arbinger Institute's leadership and self-deception. And I was driving to a client yesterday, and I have a situation where there's a little bit of conflict right now. And I started really examining my own behavior and what I need to own in the conflict, because it was very easy for me to externalize that and, and other, the the other individual, but it I, I had to look within. And in this area, I, I don't know, I think there's a lot of work for me to do. In other areas, might I be f- further advanced? So my question here is, are there areas of our lives, topics, again, to your point, from some of that baggage maybe that we have from the past, are there some areas where developmentally I might be, you know, fairly self-authored in a lot of my perspectives, but in other areas of my life, I might be really struggling. So does that come into this fallback as well? It does. It does. You know, I think, Scott, your example about conflict is the one that I think most people would would really land on and say, you know, when it comes to dealing with authority, my experience of my parents has conditioned so much of the way that I think about authority in my current context. And if we didn't have really great experiences of the ways that our parents managed their own conflict, it's really tough to learn our way into a tolerance for the discomfort of the hard conversation. So back to your point, you know, there is a whole range Wilbur talks about them as lines of development, where we can have a whole kind of um, uh, mountain range, right, of Ah. peaks and valleys of perspective and altitude available to us with regard to our uh, capacity for interpersonal relationships, our management of our psychosexual kind of urges and, and ways of relating, our kinesthetic ability. <laughs> you know, we're we're varied dimensionally um, complex creatures. And so it's natural that we're going to have various levels of capacity and refined development in each of those various dimensions. Hmm. I think that all both of the things that in response to Scott's comments and question and what you were saying just previously leads me to be really curious about how did you try and empirically observe and, and unpack 
these phenomena in this Tavistock group experience? Okay, without geeking out too much on this. <laughs> you can yeah. geek out a little bit here. This is this is <laughs> a, a geek safe space. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I really wanted to experiment with an integral methodology where the study would be basically qualitative with some quantitative elements. The quantitative elements are related to not just the use of the SOI and the methodology used to score it, but also in the incidents that were captured in people's behaviors and and in then in their interviews. What I did was um, I had 80 people in this conference and I put out the invitation to all of them, hoping that I'd get a diverse cohort of about 20 participants who would volunteer. And I was blind to who the people were so that all the invitations were going out through a third party and they were invited to participate in the qualitative and quantitative interview process. So I used Suzanne Kukruder's sentence completion test based on the Washington University Lovinger scale and in the process found that I had 18 developmentally diverse participants. They knew that I was going to be a participant observer in the context of the uh, of the group relations conference held at the University of San Diego. And they knew that there was going to be a research team paying attention to the individual and systemic dynamics, basically taking notes, but again, not knowing who they were. Then after the, the experience of the conference, I discovered who my participants were and they then went through a, a, a sort of series of interviews to explore these incidents. We would call them critical incident interviews where they could talk about moments where they showed up as their better self, you know, where they had their maximum capacity available to them and other moments when they felt like they were in fallback. Some of them had the added benefit of these frameworks and lenses prior to their participation. Some did not. And I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. People who have access to these maps of adult development have an additional tool to take perspective on themselves. Those who don't, they navigate them as best they can. Mm. There are a couple of things that were so interesting here because I didn't go into this looking to seize fallback as the phenomenon. My interest was, what are the supports that help people to show up as their better selves? And what are the internal scaffolds that people draw on? I call them, to use a very fancy academic term, endogenous adaptive resources. Don't you like that? <laughs> it has a kind of ring to it, right? That's yes. a great phrase. <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah. Well, E-A-R, right? Uh, <laughs> listen to your better self, right? And I went in looking to understand those, but what I found was both the diversity of endogenous adaptive resources people have varies depending on their developmental capacity. And the fallback phenomenon was universal. Everybody experienced fallback. What was really interesting was even the person who was scored as a late strategist, one of the later stages of uh, adult development, experienced this fallback, 
But the way in which he he actually caught it and then worked with it was so much quicker. And if you looked at the kind of comparison with folks at the earlier end of their development, people who were in the um, earlier to mid-conventional stages, expert to achiever, um, some of them weren't even aware of the fallback. Some of them adopted coping strategies to just get through the experience of the weekend because it was so so hard. And the coping strategies did very little to help people's learning. Those who decided to lean into the experience of the fallback, acknowledge it, not get caught up in guilt or shame about showing up that way, but um, decided to step back and learn, um, got feedback from others and support they were able to, in a sense, use that that fallback in a very constructive way. And in many cases, the way that they led as a result of that fallback was more thoughtful, more considerate of their fellow participants, um, more effective, if you want to use that word, in trying to achieve their goals. Yep. Well, I'm going to go back to Heifetz for a moment. And I, I'd never had this insight before, but I'd love to explore this with the two of you just for a little kind of side nook and cranny for a moment. Heifetz talks about the concept of getting on the balcony. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the Jesuits would call it reflection and action. Well, depending on my developmental level, if if I am an expert, that reflection is very different than if I am at a different stage. The, the not I don't want to say the quality but the complexity of that reflection is very, very different. So how do the two of you think about that statement? Is is it not a, a tangent we should have gone on? Or <laughs> no, I, I think it, it summarizes what David was saying. And my observation is that these models are trying to describe this phenomenon, like you're talking about, Scott, that something happens that enables people to reflect on not only what happened out there, but connect it with what happened in here. They're able to make a system out of that, see their own role in it more actively and explicitly and differentiate those things. Because earlier, often these phenomena are just a big fuzzy thing. You know, you feel pain about something, you feel embarrassed about something, you you notice somebody reacts in a way that you didn't anticipate and it's very fuzzy. I think the process of being able to make better distinctions, better observations, and connect them to your own processes is a lot of what these models are trying to describe. Would that sound right to you, David? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As Jesuits, we describe it as contemplation or reflective inaction, as as, uh, Scott was saying. And we recognize that this is a this is really a developmental capacity. It's one thing to be able to stop and reflect after action, but to exercise what a lot of people today would call mindfulness is certainly something, while we can practice it, it will have certain limits based on how much capacity for com- complexity and perspective taking we can we can have. Because my reflection might just be, well, they're bad. Yeah. Yeah. Very specific about the expert, for instance. So if I'm still having my identity and my my sense of self-concept largely authored from the outside in, I don't have a lot of access to this subjectivity. I can have 
um, awareness of a variety of things, but I haven't de developed the kind of um, understanding of my own agency and the different dimensions and aspects of that in the same way that someone who has moved into the achiever or one of the later stages has. What I'd like to do is two things. Now, one is to invite you to reflect a little bit about what does this tell you about how we use stage models? Because I had alluded to earlier that my early encounters, you know, I picked up a kind of static model of the notion of stages. And what do you understand now from this experience of seeing that everybody falls back and people use it differently? But how does this help us use stage models differently? Mm. So one of the expressions that Suzanne Kukurder uses is it's a kind of center of gravity of meaning making. When Lovinger and Susan have developed this notion of ego development, a little bit distinct from the constructive developmental theory of Keegan, it at least allows us to see that center of gravity has a lot of fluidity to it. And we can see that context matters, but also the inner state of the person matters. Where Bob Keegan would suggest that we retain a kind of awareness, even in fallback, my, my data suggests that sometimes that, that awareness can become very limited. <laughs> mm. I really recommend that, based on what I've learned, we see the fluidity of these stages more than we're trying to map them in terms of these demarcated boundaries of some kind of stage that we've moved into in a fixed way and can't be moved from it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I have the impression listening to that, that, you know, we all get brain fog at times, mm. uh, you know, and you, you alluded to this earlier, our performance can be dependent on, do we have enough protein? Did we get enough sleep? You know, what enables optimal performance and what disables it? But now what I'm really curious about is how have you taken what you've learned from all this and applied it to the current context that you were describing a little bit at the beginning? You're doing some really interesting work in Rome, working with the Vatican, working with the whole Catholic Church in some ways, or, or at least a section that is going to have some leverage. How have you been applying this into what you're doing now? We have a very robust formation program that we're we're bringing these folks into that includes personal development interpersonal development and organizational development for for these senior church leaders who want to become more discerning and to come back to that language to exercise contemplation and action not just individually but also to cultivate this as part of the culture of decision making in their organizations and we're aiming toward the horizon that Pope Francis is really introducing to the church, of moving from a very hierarchical, bureaucratic approach to this, this church, this, this reality of the institution, towards something which is much more also participatory and distributes leadership and authority broadly, recognizing that every baptized person has a role to play as a protagonist in the mission of the church. So we're doing things that my friend Frederic Lalou would call movement toward a teal kind of notion of church, right? Very empowering, very inclusive. This is a paradigm shift for those who are really identified with and attached to this earlier way of, of approaching things. And the learning must be both informational and transformational. 
I can imagine, as you said earlier, that there's a lot of baggage people bring with them. There's centuries of enculturation into a model, a way of being, and a sense of identity that people build around that. And so how are you accounting for that in this type of transformational program? Did you get? Oh. A, did you just put out a memo, let people know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, if, if I could only count the ways, because the complexity of our membership is so great. We don't only have people coming from Rome, they come from all over the world. We're on our way to India to do this work in a culture, which is so many cultures, hundreds and hundreds of cultures, all given the loose sort of name of Indian or South Asian. And you've got colonialism and caste and all kinds of permutations of Christianity. So for one thing, we try to approach things in this developmentally conscious way, but also an interculturally competent way. We see the scaffolds and supports necessary for both the informative informational learning as well as the transformational. We don't foreground adult development, but we do use, for instance, uh, the leadership circle, which introduces this notion of active, actively creative and, and reactive as two ways of patterning our behaviors as leaders. This is a very helpful introduction to this notion of capacity and competence. I'm so glad to hear that. I've been using the leadership circle since 2005. Uh, and, use it in corporate programs in my university master's course. So high impact. Well, and I, I just want listeners to kind of capture that we've heard the terms transformational and informational learning. And I think sometimes you may hear us talk about vertical or horizontal development. The the vertical and the transformational, sometimes those can be synonymous, and the horizontal and the informational can be synonymous. So listeners, you may hear some of that different verbiage being used, but I believe it was Keegan who used transformational and informational, that that's, that that's some of how he distinguished between what Torbert would call vertical and horizontal, correct? Yeah, and Keegan was working off of Jack Masro's work on transformative yes. learning, which is really important for us who do coaching and leadership development, because transformative learning are the, in a sense, the important baby steps that leads to stage change. And if you really are constantly inquiring and challenging the assumptions and the perspectives that you hold, or you're receiving those challenges and working with them, you're going to eventually have a kind of nudging of the space of your consciousness outward to include more perspectives and so that you can accommodate this sometimes apparent contradictions that we experience. You could hold more paradox. It, interestingly enough, we also use polarity management as a methodology within our curriculum. So we introduce people to this, this way of thinking in both and dialectical terms. And this also becomes a very helpful touchstone for people to see, oh, we're approaching things as problems that really are polarities to be managed. It puts us in a whole different stance and relationship to those. And then the conversation changes with our teams and with our organizations. Great. So it sounds like you're being able to incorporate many tools and processes. And as we start to kind of wind down to land the conversation, could you also maybe just say, 
what is the scope of this? You know, how long do you have these people? How much intervention are you able to do? Because that's a lot that you're bringing into play for them. Well, for, for one thing, we, we knew that we couldn't just approach this as a one and done. So each of the uh, modules, personal development, interpersonal development, organizational, take place over the span of about a year. We also build in a number of other supports. So people are partnered up with a learning partner that continues through the experience. We have peer coaching circles that help people to do this kind of collaborative inquiry about their leadership challenges, but coming from diverse perspectives. They are all in leadership stretch assignments. And then we we ask them not only to do peer coaching of one another, to do collaborative inquiry, to work on teams, and to have these leadership stretch experiences. We also have an international accompaniment network of coaches who do executive coaching, of spiritual directors who help support people in that inner work, because there's no way that adult development is separate from the inner work of spiritual maturation. Whatever your denomination, whatever your tradition, whatever your way of thinking about what's meaningful in life, these things have to come together. I, I just say that when people ask me about how did I get to where I was, I say it's all down to spiritual practice. That's the foundation of everything. All this developmental stuff is secondary. You know, I think Keegan would agree. I think uh, Torbert would agree. I, I mean, I think our friends in the developmental field have their own spiritual practices. Some of our traditions have a great deal of DNA to support the potential future growth, like an acorn, you know, into the oak tree. Um, some of our traditions may have a little bit less, at least in a very explicit way. Catholicism, for all its foibles, has a tremendous amount of resource to help support spiritual maturation. Whether we take advantage of those things is another story. I think Buddhism, you know, has come onto the scene in the last 150 years in a way that is so oriented toward the psychological intrapersonal growth. It uh, it has its limits when you get to the uh, the group and the organization, but but I think we need to draw on these resources more freely. And also um, with a certain respect that you need to be willing to go deep, right, in order to go far. And, and a superficial engagement with any of these traditions is not going to yield the kind of fruits that uh, I think people are looking for. You know, if you're going to do a contemplative practice, really take it seriously. There's no way that a, a kind of occasional practice is going to yield this kind of benefit. So. So a couple things come to mind for me. So first of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the integration that you're doing from, from the academic space, taking these concepts, combining them, working to make a difference in the world. I think that's just incredible. And Jonathan and I have engaged in a few conversations now. We're engaging in a whole host of other conversations, but many of them are with people who have the education and then they have the the desire to act the desire to implement the desire to put it into action and experiment and explore and try and move the needle and so thank you for that work it's a privilege thanks scott thanks for giving me the chance to talk about it yes it's fascinating and, and listeners you have a link to the book in the show notes so you can go explore that and of course we have a number of other conversations coming up so please tune into those because each of them are fascinating 
explorations of this topic, and you're going to be amazed at the different avenues we can go down. Now, to close out for today, you know, what have you been streaming? What have you been listening to? What have you been consuming that's caught your attention recently that might interest listeners? Is there anything that comes to mind for you? <laughs> sure. One thing I um, I want to really recommend, and I think that Jonathan is aware of her work as well, Valerie Livesay's work um, extending this notion of fallback and really exploring it in the lived circumstances of people's lives and unpacking it with so much artfulness and clarity. She does that in her book, Leaving the Ghost Light Burning, uh, Illuminating Fallback in the Embrace of the Fullness of You. It's a long title. It's maybe a little bit, in a sense, evocative. What's the ghost light? You know, it's the light that's left on stage so that people doing stage crew between scenes can basically see just enough to make the scene shift. And how do we, in a sense, leave that ghost light on for ourselves? How do we see how in these different shifts between one state and the next, one stage and the next, there's enough clarity to work with our fallback and to grow from it? So I just really highly recommend Valerie's work. I would really recommend Bill Torbert's wonderful uh, book, Numbskull, where, you know, after a lifetime of reflection in action inquiry, Bill, who's a thought pioneer in this area, reflects on how messy this work of adult development is, and with his own self-deprecating way, you know, informs us about that in his stories. Another, I'd recommend my uh, my dear friend and colleague, Aliki Nicolaides' work on generative knowing. So if you think that transformative learning is an important uh, way of thinking about adult learning, and the power of perspective shifts. Aliki's book on generative knowing has just been published, and she's looking at how do we really take stock of the day-to-day experiences we have, and in a sense, not just instrumentalize learning for effectiveness sake, but how does it add to the story of who we are? How does it add up in some way to the story of who we're becoming? Her generative knowing um, is the beginning, I think, of a of a whole new field within adult learning that will be very powerful for coaches and consultants to use who accompany people's learning to give them a beautiful big space in which to work instead of thinking simply about skills and capacities, but something that's much richer, something that's much more meaningful. That's wonderful. What you've just described touches me in a way that what I see is this second or third generation or wave of, you talk about Bill and Bob Keegan and Suzanne and people like Carl Kuhnert, who've really been pioneers in integrating this field of adult development and something we call leadership. And now there's a group of people, yourself, the other authors in this book, Valerie Aliki. Andrea Brownlow in Australia. Yeah. There's a ton. So I've been evaluating PhDs in the field and things like this. So you see there's a growing wave where people are able to kind of combine and recombine and open up new niches, apply it in different contexts, and really take this whole field to a much more rich and robust level. And so I really want to thank you, David, for joining us today from Rome. Really glad that we could catch up and have this kind of conversation. 
And to Scott, I just want to say thanks for the opportunity to join you in co-piloting through these conversations. So, so much fun. So much fun. Uh, thanks to the two of you. Have a great day. Bravo, ragazzi. Jonathan, take us behind the scenes on the title of this episode. What a fun conversation. It's titled, We Are Varied, Dimensionally Complex Creatures. What do you think? What stands out for you after our our conversation with Father David? It was so rich. And what I appreciated about it was how he holds in such an easy and natural way this multidimensionality. The, the, the complexity is so present and explicit and visible. And I think that's why the title kind of popped out is because he really shows and sees this. Okay, so fallback really quickly. And this could turn into a longer conversation. Fallback. Is a fallback just a very short time period where we kind of move back into maybe we're in, we've talked in some of our recent debriefs about contextual shifts, changes. So all of a sudden we're confronted with something that maybe we're not yet equipped to deal with. And that fallback is not necessarily, I've moved from stage four back to stage three, but it's these temporary incidents. Is that accurate? I think that's a good way of framing it. The, the way I like to talk about it, and this came up in conversation this afternoon for me, under stress, we regress. Okay. Something in the context triggers us, and our defense mechanisms come up. Mm. Our consciousness constricts, so we have less resources available to meet the situation. So our performance drops. Yeah. And that's the essence of fallback. Now, what David talked about so well in his chapter and his dissertation was understanding what is the experience of that and how does it vary developmentally? What kind of resources do people have for becoming aware of it happening, learning from it, processing it, recovering, all mm. of the diversity in that? Yeah, and it, just such a fun conversation. What else stood out for you? Well, and this ties into this, the, the distinction between meaning making, right, as a center of gravity, if you will, we're not going from Keegan's level four to Keegan's level three suddenly and stuck there because it's what our meaning making may be more stable, but our performance is always variable mm. because it's interacting with the context and these kind of things that can lead to fallback or scaffolding where our performance is better mm. so this is this notion that contextualization brings out variation in performance so whether it's conflict or coaching we will go up or down in our performance and that this led into the notion that you know the fuzziness in stage descriptions was known but not measured mm. i think and I write about this in the blog that I've done along with these reflections that we often encounter stage models which are descriptive of phenomena that helps us make distinctions about the experiences we encounter and understand it. But we don't want to get stuck in a simplistic idea that they're just linear stages and exist. No, we knew they were fuzzy 
And what David did was really drill into what is some of that fuzziness about? How does it occur? What goes on? And that this is then linked to the notion of traumatization. So the creation of triggers that then can get activated in work life. Where did that come from? You know, and I've done lots of debriefs with people with the same tool David's using, he talked about later, where you see that people can recognize eventually that, oh, that's because when I was six and this incident happened and this is how I responded to it. And now I see that pattern showing up at work. So I think David talked about that very well. And this got into the notion of being able to clean up before growing up. The other thing that that came across was that, and this has been a theme in other conversations, people that have access to these kind of developmental maps have an additional resource or tool to take a perspective on themselves. It's another way of enhancing self-awareness. The diversity of resources that people have to deal with fallback. So the notion that we all regress under stress, but we have very different resources depending upon many different factors, training, practice, socialization, whatever, and that these different resources are part of this dimensionally complex creature aspect. And that this tied into the importance of leaning into the learning from fallback. It's so critical. I know Eigel and Kunner talk about this too, lean into the challenge. And the last part of the conversation was really interesting to hear about the notions of contemplation in action within the church, mindfulness as a parallel thing, and this conversation about moving the Catholic Church towards a more participatory paradigm. And that was exciting work. Exciting work, right? In some of our previous reflections after the episodes, I've talked about learning as a way of being. But I don't know how to phrase this, Jonathan, but sometimes I say this in some of my my programs when I'm in front of groups. I love that quote, who you are is how you lead. So who are you? And are you in a continual state of development as well? That might be through your faith. That might be through your spirituality. That might be, I, I have a psychologist that I see every two weeks, not because my world is falling apart, but because he is helping me make sense of my experiences and helping me develop and grow. And that is a every two week, it's been 15 years, and it's just a continual process because as leaders, you are placed in these gnarly complex situations that sometimes are Herculean to get out of unscathed, right? Well, and what you're describing is just one example of this diversity of resources. Yes. How do leaders find coaches, mentors, whatever, to to build the resources to deal with when these triggers come? What are the resources you have? What is the practice you have at encountering these triggers? You bet. You bet. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for listening in. We really, really appreciate it. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. 
One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.